Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Over the four weeks of Advent, we've been looking at four canticles, four songs that Luke records in his gospel that accompany the, the coming of Christ into the world. As Pastor John mentioned last week, we've actually been a little bit ahead of the, the, the narrative in the sense that this is Christmas Eve and we anticipate the uh, anniversary of Christ's birth, but our fourth song this morning is actually one that you find about uh, 40 days later. After Jesus has been born, his birth has been announced, he's come, the shepherds have gathered around, and now Jesus is being brought to the temple. And as he's brought into the temple, we read this interesting story in Luke's gospel. In your order of worship, you have the song itself, which is verses 29 through 32. But let me begin a little bit earlier in verse 25 to give you a sense of the context and then we will give you a, a little bit after the song as well, so you'll hear a, a little bit what happens after the fact. So starting in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We'll stop there. Simeon's song, the, the last of the four songs we're looking at, is in many ways the same as the songs that had gone before. There are continuities, but there are also differences in this song that are important. As we think about Simeon's song, the uh, Munc Dimittis in Latin, we are going to look at two things. First, how to depart this life in peace, and secondly, how to love the world how to depart in peace, but also how to love the world. But first, let's look at the song itself and try to see the similarities and also the differences. Now, Simeon is a righteous man advanced in years. He's a man that is led into the temple by the Holy Spirit. He's a man who has spent his life waiting, a man who has spent his life in anticipation. But there's a sense in which all Israel up to this point, has lived in anticipation. But here's a man who's a kind of representative of that anticipation, of that longing. 
He's a man who longs for the consolation of Israel, Luke says. Simeon has lived his life longing to see the promise that God made to send a savior, to send a Messiah, a king into the world. He's longed to see it fulfilled, and he's been told by the Holy Spirit that he will not die until that day comes, that he will actually live to see it. The hope that so many generations before him shared and died in that hope without it being fulfilled, Simeon is told, you will see it happen. I will not let you go. I will not release you from this life until I have shown you the goodness that I intend to do. And so on that day, as the child Jesus is brought into the temple, Simeon finds himself in the Holy Spirit, guided there by the Spirit. He sees the baby and snatches him out of the arms of his mother and begins to prophesy, begins to speak to God. Ordinarily, that would be an awkward thing to happen to you if you had a newborn child. Someone walked up, stole him away from you and started talking to God. You might get nervous. But in the temple, in the temple, having been prepared in the way that Joseph and Mary have been prepared, they see this for the sign that it is. Simeon blesses God and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When we look at Mary's song and we look at Zechariah's song earlier, we saw common themes And one of those themes we see recapitulated here as well. It's the theme of covenant faithfulness. Everyone who witnessed the birth of Christ interpreted that birth in light of what had gone on before. They looked back at God's story in the Old Testament, the way that he'd related to his people then, and they understood that this is connected to that. This relates to that. And the way that it relates is through covenant, that this is the fulfillment of the covenant promise. What that means is that the birth of Christ was not seen by them as somehow an interruption in God's prior plan. God had not failed to do what he wanted to do with Israel, put the brakes on and decided to start some sort of parenthetical plan. And then eventually maybe get back to the whole Israel thing. Instead, the birth of Christ in the song of Mary and in the song of Zechariah, and now here in Simeon's song, is clearly seen as a continuation of the same plan of God, the same plan of salvation. That's the covenant promise being fulfilled in Christ. And there are signs of this, clues of this, even in the names that are mentioned. Mary mentions Abraham by name. Father Abraham that, that promise to bless the nations was made to. Zechariah mentions Abraham as well, but he also mentions David. The angels who come to the shepherds, as we saw last time, they also cite David. It's the city of David where the Savior will be born. Abraham and David, huge figures in the covenant history of Israel. We don't see those names mentioned here, but we do find this in Simeon's song. He refers to your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples for the glory, for glory to your people Israel. So he has in mind, too, God's dealings 
with Israel. The history of Israel, the history of the nation of Israel up to this point, been the history of God's plan of salvation, God's plan of redemption. We're also told in the text that Simeon has been waiting for the Lord's Christ. That word Christ is the, uh, the Hellenized form of Messiah. So he's been waiting for the Messiah who was promised by the prophets of old, the prophets in the Old Testament, just in the same way that the angels had declared, uh, declared to the shepherds that they were proclaiming a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the Old Testament Messiah. He is the one that you've been waiting for. So Simeon sees the birth of Christ as the culmination of the Old Testament promise, just as Mary did, just as Zechariah did. And it's interesting, too, to see Although we didn't look at the songs chronologically because we looked at Mary first and then Zechariah because Zechariah sings his song later than Mary does, but he actually, his story begins earlier. It's, it's where the gospel of Luke kind of opens its birth narrative. You remember the setting of the scene there where that took place was in the temple. It was in the temple. It wasn't in some obscure place. It was actually in the heart of Old Testament worship, where the angel appears and declares the fulfillment of the promise that all this stuff in the temple symbolizes. And now we come full circle. We've gone from temple to temple. We began in the temple, and now Jesus enters into the temple, and he is praised. His lordship is proclaimed in the temple where his birth was first signaled. So that Simeon as a man, who I said earlier, who kind of represents the longings of Israel, when he holds this infant redeemer in his hands, and he sings this song, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace. There's a sense in which we might say he speaks for all that has gone before. That he speaks for the surroundings in the room, for the temple, for the Levitical system, the whole order around it, of worship. All of these things are now fulfilled by Christ. He now comes and and enters into the, you might say, the empty place that these signs have carved out for him to occupy. And now that he's here, all this can depart in peace. All this can pass away because its purpose has been served as Simeon himself feels that his purpose in life has been served. He has seen the thing that was promised actually come to pass, and now he can depart in peace. Those are the similarities, but there are some differences in the earlier songs as well. It's interesting, especially on the fourth Sunday of Advent, where we light the angel candle, that in this story, there's not an angel. In the past, the annunciations are made by angels. Angels come to comfort Mary. They come to... uh, you know, uh, cut off the speech of Zechariah. Joseph's story we didn't look at, but in another gospel we learn that Joseph too receives a, a visit from angels. The shepherds saw angels, but not Simeon. Not Simeon. This man who had longed for the dawning of the New Testament era is actually told these things by the Holy Spirit. He's indwelled by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit. This is a sign of things to come. The gift of the Holy Spirit that will be given to the church at Pentecost. Now, the Spirit is said to be guiding this man, Simeon. An interesting difference. There's a difference, too, in theme. Because not only 
does Simeon reflect on the significance of the coming of Christ to Israel, but he also speaks of the significance of the coming of Christ to all people, to all people. This is not just glory to Israel, but it is a light of revelation to the Gentiles as well. This has been hinted at before in the Old Testament and by the prophets, certainly in the very promise made to Abraham that this was a promise for the nations, and yet you would have been forgiven if you lived in that old covenant system, if your worship was oriented around the temple, you would have been forgiven for thinking that God's plan of salvation was ethnic, that God intended to save a tribe, his people, the Jews. And that if you weren't one of the Jews, you were not one of God's people. And yet now, a mystery is revealed. A mystery that that from the beginning of time, the foundation of the world, it was never God's intention only to save one tribe. Rather, God intended to save humanity by saving people from every tribe, every language, and every kindred. In other words, this plan of salvation was much larger, much broader, much more embracing than anyone had realized. And this was something to feel joyous about, something new, hope for the Gentiles. Also, in the part that we read after the song, when Simeon speaks to Mary and talks about Jesus, as one who is for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He says to her, a sword will pierce your soul. That, that Christ will be a sign that is opposed or, or rejected. He begins to hint at the nature of the kingship of Christ as well. So much joy surrounded the coming of this king, and it was understandable. But a lot of that joy would have misunderstood the significance of this king would have misunderstood what it meant to say that David's throne would now be occupied again by an heir of David who fulfilled the promises to Israel. They might have imagined a kind of conquest would ensue, that once this this baby got older, he would throw out the Romans and he would put Israel back on top where it belonged. And now Simeon is, is sounding a different note that the nature of the work that this king will accomplish is not what you expect. That his kingdom will not be about enlarging his borders, it will be about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. This is a promise of salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples. Great joy, as the angels said to the shepherds, for all the people. And this means something a little bit different to them than it means to us. Usually when we think about this, we think of it in some sort of a hypothetical, universalistic way, and then we have to balance what does it mean? Like how can it be that this is good news for all peoples if not all people actually believe? But in the original context, the striking thing about including all people is that you've now extended the borders of the kingdom beyond just Israel, ethnically conceived. You've now made a spiritual Israel, where there had been a physical Israel before. That's the difference. And when we encounter this language in Scripture, we have to remind ourselves of the joy that people must have felt who had grown up in what what had seemed a very narrow 
path of salvation to suddenly discover that all of these outsiders now found themselves within. So that's the song that Simeon sings. And I'd like to think a little bit about the man who sings it and the kind of wisdom that that man brought to that moment that I think is unique. That there's a a wisdom that Simeon brings that is seen in his words, that is a wisdom that that we don't all possess and, and could actually benefit from. So I want to talk a little bit about how to depart in peace. We're approaching the new year, and it's traditional to uh, review your goals, to think about all the things you didn't accomplish over the last year, and promise yourself next year will be different. I'm going to share one thing on my list with you so that you can hold me accountable. Um, I, over the next year, have committed to help a friend of mine take years' worth of writings and turn them into a book. This is a thing I, I told him I would help him do. And as we were discussing it, he explained to me the significance of it. He said, until this is done, until you've helped me compile all this into a book, I can't die. This is my life's work. And once this is done, then I will feel free to depart. That might sound bad, but, but as your friends advance in years, this is the way you start thinking. Like, what do I need to do before I die? And my friends... Um, has aged. He's approaching 50. (laughs) Some of you are thinking maybe it's premature, but I see others are like, man, he doesn't have much time. (laughs) But I would say this reflects, I don't know if it's the wisdom of middle age, but it's certainly the character of middle age. There's a certain point in life you reach when you start realizing you're not actually going to accomplish everything that you thought you were going to do. And you kind of want to rank what's important to you, so that you don't uh, depart before you've accomplished those things. Certain goals you had, dreams that you meant to fulfill, stuff you can't leave undone. Otherwise, there's no way on your deathbed that you could have peace. And so we obsess over these things. Uh, Bucket lists, like everything you've got to do before you kick the bucket. And a lot of those things are trivial, Maybe your list includes things like skydiving without a parachute and stuff like that, which is just dumb. But, but a lot of times, when you really think about, like, what was my life for? What did I, I hope to accomplish? Certain things do emerge that it would break your heart to die without having accomplished. There are things you don't want to leave undone. And if you think about that, uh, for some, if you're, if you're young enough, it's hard to imagine that you're not going to accomplish everything. If, if you've reached my age, you don't need to think long because you're always meditating on these things you must do before you die. And uh, if you're even older, you've crossed off a lot of things undone, realizing they weren't as important maybe as you thought they were when you put them on the list. What would your list include, and how has it changed over time? It changes as, as your values change. But I think it would be a mistake to look at Simeon and think that you're looking at a man who can now depart in peace because the number one thing on his bucket list has now been checked off. So if there's just one thing I want to do before I go, I want to go into the temple, grab somebody's baby, and, and, and utter some prophecy, and then I can go then I will drop the mic and I'm out of here. That's not what's going on. That's not the spirit. It's not the wisdom 
that animates this man. Simeon is not a man who finally got to do the one thing he longed to accomplish before he could depart in peace. Simeon is a man who got to see a thing accomplished that he could never have done. He could never have accomplished himself. Seeing it meant more than doing it for Simeon. This isn't a story about the wisdom of middle age where we begin to focus on what we can accomplish. This is an older wisdom, a wisdom of deep maturity, a wisdom that takes delight in what we could never accomplish ourselves, a wisdom that takes delight in learning to live for the sake of others and the hope of others. The key to departing in peace is not doing, it's seeing. It is not in ourselves, but outside of ourselves. Simeon's peace came not from getting things done, but from seeing that God really was doing what he had promised to do. That God would accomplish what he said he would accomplish, whether Simeon was there to see it all or not. He got confirmation that he was leaving his hopes and dreams in good hands. His peace didn't come because the story was over. It came because he knew the story wasn't over, but he could trust in the outcome because it was in God's hands, not in his own. There is a kind of wisdom where we learn to hope for the best for others. We recognize that we cannot protect or care for them, that we cannot do for them all that we long to do, that we won't even be here to, to, to see it all come to fruition. And yet there is a peace that comes in knowing that we entrust this world that is in process to the hands of a God who will accomplish what he has promised to do. We depart in peace when we can depart knowing that God is still here, that God is still working, that God is faithful to accomplish what he's promised to do. The second question is how to love the world. If you depart in peace by trusting God, by recognizing with your eyes the good things he has done and believing that he will continue down the path that he has begun, and the question is, how do you love the world that you leave? The great Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers said that you can only fight love with love. We didn't say that literally, I'm paraphrasing. He said it in a more complicated way, as they tended to do. What he actually said was, to dispossess the heart of an old affection, you must do so by the expulsive power of a new one the expulsive power of a new one. You want to cleanse yourself of one love, in other words, you must replace it with a greater love. Only love can fight love. Sometimes we think about our lives and what it would take to get our lives in order to be able to uh, depart in peace, to feel like we haven't left things undone. We imagine that, that if we disciplined ourselves enough, if we amended our ways, if we started living a better life, if we got our ducks in a row, we would then be able to find some sort of equilibrium, some sort of peace. But the problem is, 
the things we love, are much stronger than the disciplines that we attempt to structure our lives by. The reason why we have all of these unfulfilled desires, these desires that draw us in every direction, it seems, but the one that we ought to travel in, the reason we have those things is because of sin. But sin is not about our attraction to what is loathsome. Like Sin is more about our love. Our love. The only way to be free of your love of the world is to discover a greater love. To discover a greater love. Loving Christ, not working hard, is the key to peace. It works both ways, though. If it's true that love of Christ can drive out love of the things of the world, it's also true that love of the world can drive out the love of Christ. John says in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world. The world is passing away. Don't set your affections on things that will not last. Paul says that love of the world is what causes the restlessness, the unfaithfulness among us. He gives an example in 2 Timothy 4, a tragic example of one of his assistants, one of his followers, Demas, who he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas, a man not unlike us, found himself a follower of Christ for a season, but then also found that the things that he gained by following Christ were not as desirable to him as what he found elsewhere. And that love is what drove him away. He loved the world more than he loved Christ. He deserted Christ. Simeon's wisdom, the wisdom of of old age, let's say. It's not just about finding peace, it's about learning the right way to love the world. The right way to love the world. There are two kinds of love that Scripture speaks of when it speaks of loving the world. One is selfish. This is the love that led Demas to abandon his faith. A selfish affection, the desires of the flesh, the pride of achievement, worldly loves, but also self-centered ones. That see the world as a place to indulge ourselves, to get what we want out of it. The world is there to be used. This love of the world actually nurtures self-love, self-involvement. But there's another love, a selfless love, the kind of love that God demonstrates. When John says in his gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his son for it. God isn't using the world to achieve an end. He is sacrificing a thing of the highest value for the sake of the world. The love of the world that God demonstrates leads to sacrifice. Simeon's peace comes not from having renounced the world to live a life of rigorous self-discipline. It comes from having loved the world so much that he can see that the only hope for the world is the work of Jesus Christ. 
He can depart in peace because he sees that what he loves, God loves even more. There's nothing he can do, just as there's nothing we can do to save what we love. And so we trust that God will do what we cannot do. That while we may not accomplish it, we can see it. We can see God doing it. God can accomplish. God will accomplish. God is accomplishing what we cannot. On this Christmas Eve, as we think about Simeon and the wisdom that drove his song, what we can learn from that, uh, I think, is this. First, we can learn to love what he loved. That we can learn to love Christ above other loves. For the sake of everything that you cherish, for the sake of your own lasting hope, I urge you to love Jesus Christ more than you love the desires of the flesh or the eye, more than you love your own pride. Love the salvation that God has prepared and love the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. There is no greater love than the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. There's no greater peace than to know that all your hopes rest not in your own hands, but in His. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.